0: On today's program, can hospice be saved?
1: Hospice is still doing fabulous work, but it's in existential danger.
0: All across the country today, hospice nurses are visiting their patients, making connections with families and communities. You have been up moving around a lot? Oh
1: yeah. I did a whole lot of moving around over the weekend. Well, you know, they say they
2: can't keep a good woman
0: down. (laughs) What started as a charitable movement to care for the dying has morphed into a $22 billion business, and some believe it has lost sight of its mission.
1: I don't think it's lost exactly, but I think if we don't act swiftly uh, and really push back against the commodification of hospice care,
2: it will be lost. And I think you can go through the motions, make all the visits and document the way you're supposed to, and still people don't feel cared for.
0: In this age of investor-owned hospices, we talk mission, margin, and the soul of caring today on the Hear Me Now podcast. Stay with us. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening. Hospice is in turmoil. At the end of last year, the New Yorker magazine, in tandem with ProPublica, published exposés documenting fraud and neglect in a number of investor-owned for-profit hospices. The hospice industry pushed back, saying what Ava Kaufman described was limited to a few bad players, bad apples, if you will. But my guests today, Dr. Ira Bayak and Dr. Glenn Komatsu, think there's more to it than that, that hospice in the U.S. is at risk of losing sight of its mission and losing its soul. I'm happy to have Drs. Bayak and Komatsu back on the podcast. Gentlemen, it's good to see you both. Welcome back.
2: Thanks, Sean.
0: Hi, Sean. Really nice to see you, too. I want to start with the notion of mission. And I think there's probably no better voice to hear from right at the beginning than that of Dame Cicely Saunders, the nurse turned social worker turned physician, who is credited with being the foundress of the modern hospice movement. Dame Cicely died in 2005 at St. Christopher's Hospice in London, which she founded. But she wrote extensively about hospice and the reasons for this type of care. And she taught students to appreciate the needs of families. Here she is describing hospice in the 1970s.
3: When we look at the whole spectrum of the needs that a person as part of his family or her family may have at the end of life, we can be very daunted and feel, I can't possibly cope with that. I'm I'm a simple doctor. I, I know how to deal with physical things, and that's what I should be doing. But we're not here on our own. We should be very much part of a team, the nurses, the physiotherapists. Everybody who is involved with this patient is is part of the team. And to be able to share is enormously important in this work. If you think um, it's only I who understand this patient and can deal with it, that's a dangerous position to be in. And it may not only be the patient, it may be the family, Maybe may be the child of the family that needs to ask the question of the doctor. Um, and it's very important that when we're thinking of the whole family, we don't leave the children out because it may make a big difference to the whole of the rest of their lives, how they handle the death of a parent or a grandparent or a sibling. I think the physician has to look at his own sense of meaning of life, and that has to be an involvement at the real depth of what it means to be human. What we're looking at, I think, is the whole area of spirituality, which is much wider than a purely religious practice. It is, I think, the search for meaning, the look at one's own most important values, the feeling of looking beyond yourself and of somehow belonging to something more than you are, be it maybe only your own family network. But there is something about knowing who you are and looking back on your life and coming to terms with it, and being able to lay it down with some degree of quietness, which I think is much deeper than just psychological, and it's something to which I would give the title spiritual. And I think that is part of man. And to leave that on one side and only look at the body and the physical side is to shortchange people. People are more important than just that.
0: The founder of the modern hospice movement, speaking in the 1970s, Ira Bayak, would Cicely Saunders recognize hospice in America in 2023?
1: Uh, yeah, having having had the privilege of knowing Dame Cicely, uh, uh, she'd be disgusted. I think she'd be aghast.
0: Glenn, you're nodding.
2: Yep, yeah, I agree.
0: Ira, your own writing, starting with "Dying Well" in 1997, has been foundational for the growth of hospice in America. Um, that book absolutely changed my life and how I think about human community. And there are three words from it that are burned into my consciousness. Clean, dry, bed. They are a pledge of accompaniment, a proof text that you are caring for someone that people deserve to be cared for and not abandoned in their final days.
1: You know, one of the earliest uh, kind of uh, historians chronicling the the early development of hospice care um, described hospice as an intimate transaction of people living in community. And I think that you know offering people at its basis a clean dry bed, making that an absolute bottom line is uh, is uh, reflective of that approach that this is this is about Living in community with one another uh, around issues of illness, caregiving, dying, and grieving. And, and we, in, in medicine, I'll speak just as a, you know, we physicians, I, I don't mean to be overly chauvinistic, but just at, um, keeping it within my own discipline, um, we layer on to that, contribute to that community response. Uh, technical ex- expertise in diagnostics and therapeutics and bringing the pharmacology and, and technology to bear uh, in service of of giving people, you know, the best care we possibly can in the context of of their own lives, their narratives, their families' lives, and and as a human community. Yeah. Now, by the way, uh, you know, we come to a time when hospice care, unfortunately, has become transactional and commodified. And it's nobody's ill intention, but it's inconsistent with what we thought we were building.
0: Ava Kaufman's reporting last year on ProPublica and in, in The New Yorker really took hospice to task across the board, but it focused on for-profit Um, investor-owned hospices saying that they had become for-profit hustles rather than uh, mission-driven health care. There was pushback from the leadership of the many professional organizations that represent um, caregivers in hospice. Um, And they said basically uh, a few bad actors doesn't damn the whole system, which is certainly true. But what is also certainly true is that the landscape of hospice has changed by the arrival of investor-owned companies who are focused on returning a profit to uh, shareholders. It makes me wonder whether there's something just antithetical about for-profit hospice, that when margin trumps mission... The mission is going to get lost.
1: Yes, but I don't think it's the corporate structure or the tax status alone. I think it is uh, allowing uh, profit to to trump mission. Uh, what what we've seen is most egregious in the for-profit corporations, particularly the private equity owned or investor owned, you know, shareholder owned corporations that uh that really have become you know uh, excessive in in their need for ever greater margins um you know for one thing i don't think there's anything innately wrong about being a for-profit healthcare company hells bells i'm an american that you know capitalism is is patriotic uh but but um you know at some point uh whether you're a nonprofit in which margins still matter a lot in nonprofit corporations it turns out or for profit uh, at some point enough is enough and at some point there's tension between your margin and delivering consistent reliable high quality care and we have now exceeded that particularly in some of the most uh, avaricious for profit Companies. I mean, the government's own report, uh, um, 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 Medicare's own report, uh, documents that for-profits on average are making 19% per annum margin compared to 6% for nonprofits. You know, uh, at some point, it, that erodes quality, and it does so by... Diminishing the number of doctors for your patient load in your program, their scope of of responsibilities that you're paying them for, uh, increasing caseloads that nurses are carrying to the point where it becomes really untenable and you're delivering inconsistent, unreliable care, and you're burning out nurses who are dealing with constant moral distress, constant fatigue of doing their charting at 11 p.m., You know all of that, and you're understaffing nurses, aides, and you're not providing, you know, respite care, and you're not providing general inpatient, uh, hospice, ICU levels of care, and you're not providing bereavement support to families, or all of that, and that has now happened. All of that, you know, it's not; it, it, it is more than a few bad apples. There are certainly excellent programs, and By the way, Dr. Kamatsu, you know, runs one, but this is no longer rare. And can I go say one more thing before I just get off of this rant? That is, what what really bothers me, um, maybe the most here, is that the associations we helped form, we paid dues to, we support in all kinds of volunteer educational efforts and all kinds of work that we do for the, for talking about the Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, among others, are refusing to accept any measure of responsibility for this happening. And we all saw it happen with eyes open. I can tell you I've had more conversations with leadership over the last three and a half decades about this very issue than I can remember. and, and, they haven't responded, and that's not an omission. Oh, like we, gee, we've had other priorities. That was a, by intention. They decided, nope, we're going to kind of let the market sort itself out, or we'll we'll let Medicare figure this out. Uh, and they've and they haven't. And even today, <clears throat> they refuse to accept responsibility for seeing this happening and not responding. In fact, even today, <clears throat> all of the issues that. Ava Kaufman wrote about, uh, I piled on with an essay in stat about, um, uh, poor quality care being different than fraud and abuse, but, you know, um, overlapping at times that, um, this has happened in real time. The associations are allowing it to happen today. Nothing substantial has changed.
0: We, um, We have a link to that essay uh, in stat that you wrote um, six months, seven months ago. Um, We also have copies of the response from the organizations in which they make the bad apple um, um, argument Uh, and, as you say, don't really take any responsibility for what's gone on in their industry. And I use industry purposefully there. I, I hate to talk about medicine as an industry, but this seems like an example where it's exactly the right word to use to describe what's going on in hospitals. Glenn, you're spending every day uh, working with, with patients, and I'm curious what your sort of immediate take is on this tension that Ira is describing.
2: Yeah, thanks, John. Um, The great thing about being on with Ira is that he is much more erudite and articulate than I am. And so I totally agree with everything he said. I don't think there's inherently anything bad about being a for-profit, just like we in the nonprofit world are not necessarily great um, providers the tension between mission and margin is ever present. And I'll tell you, we look at our financials every senior management meeting and, you know, we're graded, you know, green, yellow, or red. And the leadership does not want to see red, you know, we're losing money. And so we're just trying to lose less money and, break even really, and we're not really succeeding our organization. Anyway, just speaking for us, we're not really succeeding in that. So we have a, a a really active foundation that raises, you know, a ton of money to support our programs because to do cutting edge work, that's not well uh, reimbursed requires philanthropy. And so that's how we're able to maintain our standards and our stature in the world, but it's difficult. It's really hard. And we pay attention to the bottom line, just like everybody else.
1: That's all true. And by the way, you know, I, uh, in full disclosure, I have worked with Glenn. Uh, I was part of the Providence of, uh, corporation, nonprofit, uh, corporation, but I'm also a donor to the Trinity, uh, care foundation and, and, uh, uh, and proudly so because it, it is again, part of a community taking care of its own, you know, that, that through the, through the vehicle of Trinity care and Providence hospice and palliative care. Um, so it's not, that's not a illegitimate way of thinking about what, what, a what a healthy community response is to, to the fact of human illness and caregiving and dying. But the irony here is that, that because of the work I've, I've done in academia and through the Institute for Human Caring, I know that the work that, that hospice is doing is actually saving the larger health system substantial amounts of money. And that while well, Glenn says, well, you know, we, we're under pressure by senior management to, you know, to um, make a margin here and all that. Well, yes, in a, in a very unsophisticated uh, kind of accounting, of 20th century accounting of a profit and loss sheet, yeah, they're losing money, right? But if you look at the global costs of total costs of health care for human beings they um, without hospice and palliative care, uh, the uh, cost per patient would be far higher mm. and we have this is not just philosophy or or general principles we have data that shows that the early involvement of palliative care raises quality and substantially uh, diminishes costs sure. right. So it's really the accounting system that's part of the problem here, uh, really, m- more than the excessive costs of having enough physicians and nurses to care well for seriously ill and dying patients.
0: You know, um, Eric Cassell's book, The Nature of Suffering and the Goals of Medicine, has a has a section which I think is called a simplified um, description of the person, which of course is not a simplified description of a person it's one of the most poetic complicated descriptions of what makes us who we are and and one of the points that the um, the balance sheet view of medicine misses is that there's so much to us that never makes it onto a balance sheet um, and that was the great hope of hospice I thought was that here were caregivers, who cared about the complexity of the patient in all of the ways that we're complex. Our relationships, our fears, our hopes, our secret lives, um, all of those things are present at the end of our life and need to be cared for in some way. And here was a group of people willing to sit there at the bedside and nurture the person. And then you read what the New Yorker published, and what ProPublica published, and what you're describing as being part of the conversation that's been going on for years, and you realize
1: maybe that's a pipe dream. Maybe that care doesn't happen anymore. It does happen. It, it still does happen. Um, you know, Hospice is still doing fabulous work, um, but but it's in danger of of it's in existential danger, uh, and and that's again that's not. That's not just philosophy. Um, uh, there are a lot of bad apples in the barrel these days, not just a few, but there are, you know, I, I like to think many more good apples still today, though the barrel is infected and it's going quick. things are going to spread quickly. The influence of the business environment and the and the accounting, you know what? What hospice is being held accountable for financially is is really rampant. We have never sort of set clear standards for what quality looks like. You know there are things we could do to maintain to to describe that intimate transaction or intimate relationship really of of people living in community, um, and and there's been this remarkably odd resistance to doing so as if, if if we put out there firm standards of responding time and responding to emergencies or how many patients it would, it's safe for nurses to carry or how many doctors are necessary per, you know, uh, 50 patients on your average daily census or whatever, uh, that somehow we'd be offending some of our programmatic colleagues, you know. I, I don't think it's lost exactly, but I think if we don't act swiftly uh, and really push back against the commodification of hospice care, um, it will be lost. And, and let me say one other thing: that you know we know that the way hospice has been paid for under Medicare is. Is changing. It's already changing, and it looks very much like uh, hospice will be "quote unquote" carved into general Medicare. It has been Mm. carved out uh, uh, of responsibilities of the general Medicare providers. But if it's carved in under Medicare Part C or Medicare Advantage, without there being clear parameters for what really hospice requires in terms of services, functional definitions, then it's just going to go away. Uh, these uh, Medicare Advantage companies, United Healthcare, and, uh, you know, uh, Kaiser and others are, are just going to assert that they do hospice care and there will be no effective way of saying, no, you don't.
2: Mm. Yeah. You know, IRA has done really groundbreaking work in quality improvement in hospice-empowered and care through the Institute for Human Caring. You know, all the measurables that he just alluded to. But Sean, what you just talked about uh, in the nature of suffering is more qualitative. And I think that's really hard to measure. And I think you can go through the motions, make all the visits and document the way you're supposed to, And still people don't feel cared for because people didn't bring the qualitative um, aspects to the work. And by qualitative, I mean uh, qualities like love and joy. You know, and I, after doing this work for decades now, I really have come to appreciate the culture that we've tried to create at our hospice and specifically in my small pediatric team. It's like, what do we bring that differentiates us from you know, the care that these children and families get at four of the best children's hospitals in the world in Los Angeles and Orange County? And it's that qualitative difference. They get the best medical care in these children's hospitals but they don't get love. They don't, um, the caregivers don't bring joy to the work and help the families and the children recognize joy when it comes up, even you know, those small slices of joy, even as kids deal with terminal illness. And that is that is what differentiates, I think, really really great hospice care from average hospice care.
0: Dr. Kamatsu, can you elaborate a little bit more on how those qualitative values get communicated to a staff? How do you inculcate new folks when they're onboarded that this is what we're about?
2: Yeah. Yeah. That that really is a great question, Sean, and I'm still trying (laughs) to figure that out. But what I try to do as a leader is model that and talk about, um, you know, the joy that this work brings to me. I talk, um, I really take every opportunity to support my team when I get a phone call and a nurse has a question for me. It's like, not only do I answer the question, but I take time to explain to him or her why we're doing this way. I take the time to thank them and show appreciation for their concern and their, you know, their time that they spent with the visit. And I try to show that to parents when I'm visiting them and thanking them for allowing me into their home allowing us to take care of their precious child. You know, it's it's the small things, I think, that add up to a different culture. And I see that in the nurses. They say they taught me really about the value of love. They come to me and say, and this is when I was a neonatologist too, I love this child. And, you know, I didn't grow up in a culture that was, you know, where we said those things. And it took me a long time to get past my own uh, sort of biases that, you, you know, nobody talks about love in medical school. Nobody talks about love in medical training, right? That's like antithetical almost. And love is really what we bring to the table. I, know, I was giving a talk to one of the big healthcare organizations about Alzheimer's disease, which I'm far from an expert in. But <clears throat> when I was uh, preparing my remarks, you know, we have very few medications that currently do any, much of anything in advanced Alzheimer's disease. And I thought about what does my hospice bring to the table to help these patients and families. And what we bring is love and kindness and patience and support. Because at the end of the day, that's what those people need and what the families need to keep going because it's so hard. It's so hard to deal with, uh, you know, a person with dementia in the last part of their life.
0: Ira, when you and I met um, more than 30 years ago, um, you were still working um, pretty routinely in a hospice in Missoula, uh, seeing patients uh, every day. And um, I, I walked away from that thinking, I've met a physician who has clinical expertise, but has something else going on that that makes him a human being, a mensch uh, at the bedside, and I thought that was what all of hospice was going to be about—that uh, that that modeling that Glenn just described, that that others would pick up from from folks like you two, and I, I kind of wonder where where your colleagues have been. Through all this, um, why haven't they pushed back as much as they could? Um, why haven't they spoken up?
1: The the forces of of what has become the industry uh, are very strong. The expectations for productivity and um, you know various other types of performance. Uh, are really um, very difficult for any individual physician to to counter. Um, I was smiling broadly because uh, as as Glenn was talking because I, I so ardently believe and, and affirm what he said, it is that qualitative sense of presence, the ability to listen and acknowledge um, uh, the uniqueness of this person. Uh, is is very difficult to describe in objective terms or to measure. Um, but I'm going down swinging. I, I keep trying to describe it in ways that are measurable or reflected in things that we can systematize. Um, one of the things that I've tried to do is talk about the phenomenon, the human potential for well-being. Coincident with dying. And, and joy, which Glenn mentioned, uh, thank you for that, is is one of the uh, telltale signs of or components of well-being. If, if you can laugh or somebody can laugh or giggle or, or feel joy for even moments at a time, their capacity for well-being is intact, right? And, and speaking of Alzheimer's, just as an aside, um, when I, when i'm working with somebody with advanced alzheimer's disease I, I to the extent possible i try to go directly for the joy <laughs> what, what can we do to elicit a smile from this person you know what you know is it putting a baby in their lap because mm-hmm. if they're if they're still cognizant at all that's a trigger often is it is it massaging their feet is it a piece of birthday cake is it Whatever the hell is, music is a good one. Um, That movie, Alive Inside, which you can still see on Netflix, is if if people listening don't think that people with advanced Alzheimer's disease have capacity for joy, just spend a few minutes with that movie, Alive Inside. It'll change your expectations. Um, But defining well-being as part of the extent of human potential, not just comfort uh, and alleviation of suffering, that helps us in, you know, what I, one of the things I've tried to do, uh, Glenn, I think you know this, is when, I, when I'm managing an interdisciplinary team meeting, uh, we pause at, at, toward the end and say, what are the opportunities to respond to suffering here? What are the opportunities we have for well-being? What, what can, can we help this person not only feel less pain, but also have a sense of uh, completion, uh, maybe celebration um, uh, recognition for their accomplishments, not just their woes, all of that. That's, those are things that can be systematized to kind of hold open the capacity for whole person caring, right? To acknowledge caring in the context of the person's life, not just in the context of their damn problem list. Uh, so I, and I've tried to bring measurement to that as well, but, um, so I'm going down swinging on this. It hasn't worked yet, I have to say. Um, the 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 uh, l sheets and the old style looks uh, ways of accounting for uh, quality and performance are all about the medical model and are kind of depersonalized. Sell and his concept of personhood gave us dimensions of the person that may still be have the capacity for well being. Despite the fact that one's physiology is is eroding, right, right.
0: Well, I, I guess it's my job as uh, a quasi-journalist here is to ask, what could fix this? What could turn the corner? What could what could affect change that would be meaningful?
1: I can be the first to say I have no idea. <laughs> I, I really don't. I know the things, I can only take care of my side of this relationship. I know things that I can do. Speaking the truth, spending so many damn hours writing, you know, essays and and letters and trying to just put it out, doing podcasts, just trying to put it out there. Um, partly um, to uh, hold a mirror up to those in power and our national associations, but all of our colleagues as well as Congress and Medicare and the regulators uh, and and all of that. I have to say, and this is going to expand the conversation a little bit, um, that the same problems we're having in hospice care are the same problems uh, impacting so much of American life and society. And it it is the commodification of everything. And the, the private equity um, ownership of damn near everything right now. As we have this conversation, the uh, writers' strike in Hollywood is approaching 110 days, I think, uh, and um, and that's all about um, private equity owning the the uh, vehicles of entertainment and and creativity. Be damned! Now the you know, Netflix is asking their writers to create content for second screens. Right? You know what I mean by that? I mean. It's like what no. I do with with um, Major League Baseball. Don't don't hate me for saying that, Sean. Um, but you know uh, that may be up on a second screen that I'm watching. That now that's what they want. They just they, they don't give a damn about quality. They don't they, they don't want to pay writers for their creative works. They just want stuff.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's all about margin. Clint, any hope here?
2: Yeah, you know one of the things I admire most about Ira is that he's used his platform um, in such an impressive way. You know, he, because of who he is and his contributions to the field, one of the one of the founding fathers of the field and one of the most influential people, he's used his platform to write his editorial pieces that get put in the New York times and the LA times. And, um, and so I think that is really great. And I think that's, um, I really am impressed by that. I don't have the same platform. And so I have my own little laboratory of, of work in my local area and I'm trying out things to see what works and see if I can create a culture that really promotes love and joy in the work that helps sustain us by the way and uh, mitigate against burnout. You know, those are the things if I can, you know, sort of do smaller things on a smaller scale, and then I can talk about it, you know, in bigger audiences and say, you know, we did this at Providence and this really worked or this didn't work. I think that's my, that's where my hope lies and motivation.
0: If one were in need of uh, hospice care for a loved one, what do you do? Do you shop around? Do you interview programs before you decide where your loved one gets placed?
2: it's, It's hard. You know, um, Hospices are really good at promoting themselves, and we try to do the same thing. And so it's just like finding a good doctor. You know, it's not easy, quite honestly. You know, the maze of the healthcare system is difficult to navigate. Um, I think you look at the start with the nonprofit versus profit status and go from there, and you you talk to your primary care doctor, your oncologist, your, you know, because they, they have some idea. Mm. And uh, I think too, talking to social workers, uh, case managers at local hospitals, you know, they, they also have, have some idea about who are the better hospices.
1: I think the the nonprofits in general are still a a reasonable filter to start because they have boards of directors of people in the community they serve owning the program rather than people who, you know, may own a program through shares of stock or some holdings in a private equity company. That's not a complete answer. Um, You know, I, I think we... I suggest people look at programs that have been in business for 10 or more years. And then I, I fully agree with what Glenn said, uh, um, ask, ask if you're in a hospital being referred to a hospice program, ask the social worker who's been seeing you or, or the nurses and kind of call them aside and making direct eye contact saying if this was your mom, Mm. which hospice program would you call? Again, you know, um, there are there is our data sets. There's Medicare.gov has a hospice compare website that has some data on various hospice programs. There's something now a, a single person, a gentleman named Court Kasner, has created the National Hospice Locator, which has every hospice in your zip code, and and data about quality and some of their. Uh, descriptions of the hospice program, including ownership being one category. Mm. And yes, if you have a chance, interview more than one program. How many times will my mom be seen uh, per week? Can she see a hospice doctor if if we feel it's necessary? Um, what happens after hours? Yeah. Um, what happens if the medication she's been given for pain don't work or a new problem arises? Who do we call? and what should we expect happens um so there there are there are other things but it's it's it isn't easy these days but it's needlessly hard uh we we we've, we've all done more complicated things than this successfully
2: yeah the other thing um that is out there is external certification which validates our practice like the joint commission like our hospice undergoes joint commission surveys every three years to look at our practice, really examine our records um, and see if we meet national standards and guidelines.
0: Glenn Kamatsu, Ira Bayak, I'm so grateful, not only for your conversation today, but for the work that you've done through the years and the, the caring that you do um, still to this day. Thank you for for sharing this with us, and thank you for fighting the good fight. Keep on keeping on, as they say.
2: Yep. Thank you, Sean.
0: Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having us. Ira Bayak is Emeritus Professor of Medicine and Community and Family Medicine at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth and the founder of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Dr. Bayak is the author of Dying Well, The Four Things That Matter Most, and The Best Care Possible. We reached him in Missoula, Montana. Glenn Kamatsu is the chief medical officer of the Providence Hospice, Los Angeles County. He spoke with us from Torrance, California. Earlier, I made reference to Eric Cassell's essay, A Simplified Description of the Person from his book, The Nature of Suffering and the Goals of Medicine. There's a link to the text on our website, but here's an excerpt. Persons have personality and character. Personality traits appear within the first few weeks of life and are remarkably durable over time. Some personalities handle some illnesses better than others. A person has a past. The experiences gathered during one's life are part of a today as well as yesterday. Memory exists in the nostrils and the hands, not only in the mind. A fragrance drifts by and a memory is evoked. A person without a past is incomplete. A person has roles. I am a husband, a father, a physician, a teacher, a brother, an orphan son, and an uncle. People are their roles, and each role has rules. Together, the rules that guide the performance of roles make up a complex set of entitlements and limitations of responsibility and privilege. By middle age, the roles may be so firmly set that disease can lead to the virtual destruction of a person by making the performance of his or her roles impossible. Whether the patient is a doctor who cannot doctor or a mother who cannot mother, he or she is diminished by the loss of function. Every person has a body. The relation with one's body may vary from identification with to admiration, loathing, or constant fear. Disease can so alter the relation but the body is no longer seen as a friend, but rather as an untrustworthy enemy. Everyone has a secret life. Sometimes it takes the form of fantasies and dreams of glory. Sometimes it has a real existence known to only a few. Within this secret life are fears, desires, love affairs of the past and present hopes and fantasies disease may destroy not only the public or the private person but the secret person as well a secret beloved friend may be lost to a sick person because he or she has no legitimate place by the sick bed when that happens the patient may have lost the part of life that made tolerable an otherwise embittered existence. Such loss can be a source of great distress and intensely private pain. Everyone has a perceived future. Events that one expects to come to pass vary from expectations for one's children to a belief in one's creative ability. Intense unhappiness results from a loss of the future, the future of the individual person, of children, and of other loved ones. Everyone has a transcendent dimension, a life of the spirit. The profession of medicine appears to ignore the human spirit. When I see patients in nursing homes who have become only bodies, I wonder whether it is not the transcendent dimension that they've lost. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Health System and its family of organizations. Find us online at hearmenowpodcast.org. The program is produced by Scott Acord and Melody Fawcett. We have research help from medical library staff, Carrie Grinstead, Basha Dolavska Elliott, Sarah Viscusso, and Heather Martin. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening today. Be well.